If you guys want to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we are going to be there tonight. Uh, if I haven't met you, my name is Kyle. I am the college pastor here at ABC, so glad to have you all tonight. I know we have some new faces. Really hope you guys feel welcome, and so glad to have you all. Um, and like I think was mentioned in the prayer, we are in a relationships series right now that we are calling Loveology. Um, we took that from a book of the same title, but really we're basing it on a couple of different studies. Um, but the past uh, four weeks, we've been walking through these ideas of what does the Bible say about love, about romance, about marriage, dating, sex, all things like that. And the past four weeks have been that. This week, we're looking at the topic of singleness. And what does the Bible say about singleness? And then uh, for the next few weeks, we're going to turn a corner a little bit and next week look at what is God's design for men and women in society, in the church. And in the last two weeks of our series, we're going to look at uh, what does the Bible say about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, and transgender identity. So lots of things that I think you'll want to join us for as we navigate some of those things. But And then we'll end the semester with a marriage panel. I keep forgetting to say that. We're going to have some uh, married adults from our church from different phases of, of life, from young married couples all the way through some senior adult married couples that will be here to join us and give some insight about relationships and marriage. It's going to be a lot of fun. So, um, but for tonight, we're talking about singleness and, and what that is. And so we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7. We'll get there in just a minute. Um, but uh, I wanted to find my terms for just a moment before we get rolling because we hear the, the word single and we hear this idea of singleness and it can maybe mean a lot of things to you because, you know, in society we have lots of, you know, stages and definitions of relationships and, and what they are. You know, we hear single versus maybe you're like talking to somebody versus dating versus like really serious versus Facebook official or something. We have lots of different you know, definitions of this. When I say singleness tonight, I, I'm going to use the biblical definition, okay? Because I'm a pastor, right? That's what I do. Um, but the, the Bible only has two categories when it comes to relationships. Either you're married or you're single. All right, you're either married or you're single. So tonight when I say singleness, I'm not talking about, well, you're just not dating anyone right now, something like that. I mean like you're not married. So for most people in the room, aside from maybe me and, and Mike and Victoria, no one else in here. Well, no, we have more married people. We have like four or five married people tonight. So now we got lots of married people. And Jacob, man, okay, I shouldn't even say anything about it. So we have some married people in the house. But the majority of y'all are not, so we're going to call y'all single for tonight. Uh, now, guys, I wouldn't put that on your Facebook status if you're dating a girl. Like, you know, be careful with the definition of singleness. Okay, she would not like that, okay? Don't use the biblical definition of single in your Facebook status if you're dating somebody, okay? But for tonight, that's what we mean when we say singleness, all right? Um, but a little bit about me. You may not know my story, but I'm, I'm old. I'm 32. Uh, but I actually just got married last year. I've only been married to Haley about a year and a half. And so I got married when I was 31 years old, which to many sounds like a nightmare, um, you know, and their worst dreams come true that you wouldn't get married till your 30s. Um, but for me, this idea of singleness and singleness in the church and navigating single life, not just in college, but as an adult, is very relevant to me. And I hope to maybe give us some insight tonight about that. I mean, and first off, I mean, I want to say that my season of singleness as a 20-something and very early 30s um, really was a, a great beneficial thing in my life. I love Haley. I would not change you know, our story for the world. I love being married to her. But the season of singleness that I had as an adult, really God used it in a bunch of ways in my life to make me who I am today. Um, but for both of us, you know, because she got married to me at 31 as well. We're the same age. And so for both of us, we had a longer period of singleness in life that really is a big part of our story and has served as a big part of how God has worked in our lives. And so I want to share a little bit tonight from God's word and also personal experience about what the Bible has to say about singleness, what it is, that it's a good thing, and we'll go from there, okay? But... Um, for, the, for most people in America, you know, the average age these days of marriage has gone up. I don't know if you've 
heard about this, but the average age for people to get married these days is actually 29 for guys and uh, 27 for girls. So I'm above average in that way, if you want to say, you know, 29. Yeah, my mom always told me I was above average. Okay, so, um, but yeah. So, got, uh, yeah, so 29 for guys, 27 for girls. But the reality is that for many people, yourself included, that it may very well be three, four, five, six, seven, eight years before you get married after you graduate college. Not putting that over you, but just saying it's, it's a reality that for many people, whether you're going to get married or not, uh, that there are years of singleness for many people, more maybe than ever before in our society as the age of marriage goes up. And in our culture, there's lots of reasons that we could maybe talk about for singleness and, you know, the, the higher age of marriage. You know, some of it's just we're terrified of commitment in our society. You know, some of it's maybe we're not sure if we're financially ready for marriage. Some of it is bad expectations for marriage we've talked about. Some of it is the fact that we're having sex outside of marriage and don't really feel like we need the commitment of marriage because we're getting the benefits of marriage, if we're honest, in terms of culture. So there's lots of reasons we could talk about, about that. But either way, many people are staying single a lot longer than they have um, before. But even with that, there's still this stigma around singleness, especially in the church. And we'll get to that a little bit later on tonight. But there is this idea still of, of singleness and this stigma. So I think it's really important for us to talk about what does the Bible say about singleness and really what perspective does it give on that. So that's why we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 7 tonight. So you have 1 Corinthians 7 pulled up. We'll get there in just a second. But last week, if you remember, we looked at chapter 6. And we looked about looked at sexuality and, and what chapter 6 had to say about that. But just if you remember some of the context from last week. Remember that Corinth, which is the Corinthians, is the church written to in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the city of Corinth, we know, was full of sexual temptation in many different ways. Um, but the church in Corinth specifically, the Christians in that city, uh, had a lot of questions in this letter that they wrote the Apostle Paul, the guy who penned 1 Corinthians. And a lot of their questions had to do with issues of uh, loveology, uh, of sexuality, of dating, of marriage. Well, not dating because they didn't have dating, but marriage. You know, uh, even being married to a non-Christian, what do you do in that situation? So lots of questions that some of them are relevant to us. Um, but in this uh, book, there's one question they have that's very relevant to us tonight. And it's this question. They ask the question basically of, well, why even get married at all? Like, you know, if, if Jesus was single, if Christ could return any day, you know, in light of our culture and what's going on, like, why should we even get married? Like, what's the, what's the purpose of marriage versus being single? And they ask this question, and Paul gives a surprising response I want us to look at tonight from 1 Corinthians that gives us a great insight to singleness. So look at verse 6 with, you, with me, if you will, of chapter 7. We're going to go verses 6 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 7, and then we'll kind of skim through some of his letter in, in this chapter as we go through the evening. But start in verse 6 with me. I'm in the ESV translation. It says this. It says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. It's Paul. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. As I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to, than to burn with passion. So what we see here in these verses and more that we'll look at in a second, really two main things we can take away from this text about singleness. Because first off, it's important to know that Paul the Apostle was single. He never was, was married as far as we know. Some historians think he was widowed, but at least during his time penning the New Testament letters he wrote, he was not married. He did not have a wife. So when he says, I wish that all were as my, I, I myself am, he says, I wish that all of you were, were single. So what does that mean? What is he talking about? With that, two things we want to see tonight about singleness. The first is this. And this is a big deal. That singleness is not an inferior state to marriage. 
That singleness is not an inferior state to marriage. Because in our culture today, as people are marrying later and staying single longer, there still is a stigma around singleness, especially in the church. And like I said, you know, I was single for a long time before I got married longer than maybe the average person. Uh, I was single in the church for a long time. And honestly, it can be a very awkward, difficult place to navigate sometimes. And, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, because really much of our society is built around families and, and kids and, and, and things like that. And, and many, many well-meaning people in the church will sometimes treat you the older you get as a single person, like you have a disease to be cured, you know, more than anything else. And they want to hook you up with the, you know, or set you up with the next person with a pulse who they, so they can get you married, you know, because you've got to move on to the next stage of life. Like singleness is some problem to be solved um, in that way. But single at 30 looks different than single at 20. So I want to focus on that issue for us tonight. Um, but a few things to note, like I said, Paul was single. So his writing here gives us a lot of insight, but also one other prominent New Testament person was single. Jesus, ultimate Sunday school answer for once, right? So Jesus and Paul were both single. And it's important to know this, that singleness at that time was very, very radical. That it was a really radical idea that Paul and Jesus both were single. Because in the first century, when Paul's writing this letter and when Jesus was ministering, family was everything. Like family really was everything. Like in Jewish culture, you were expected to marry at 18. If you didn't marry by 18, if you got to 20 and weren't married, they considered you accursed, like you had some kind of curse on your life. In Greco-Roman culture, um, if you didn't have kids before you died, they said that you died twice because you basically were forgotten. One of the Caesars of the time in Greco-Roman culture put a tax on widows who didn't get married within two years of their husband passing away because they wanted them to get married again you know, to be part of that society. So there's, there was this incredible pressure on people during that time to be married, to have kids, because really the biggest thing is this like kids were your retirement plan back then like there was no 401k there's no Roth IRA things like that there's no retirement plan like your kids are your retirement plan they're going to take care of you when you're old they're going to you know they're going to work and provide for you when you're older they were your retirement plan so having kids and having a family was a big big deal at that time because they were really everything you were banking on but yet we see Paul say in first Corinthians that it's good to be single that it's a good thing Um, And historians, they argue that even the early church, the early Christian church, was actually the first movement to ever uphold singleness as a actual viable way of life. That they were one of the first groups to ever do that. And and how is that so? Well, we're going to see that in 1 Corinthians 7. So skim down with me, if you will, to verses 29 through 31. I want to read these for us so we get more insight into why Paul would say singleness is a good thing, what's a viable way of life. Look at verse 29 with me. We'll go to 31. Paul says this, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So what in the world does Paul mean by that? Well, here's one important thing to remember. If you were with us last year with Sermon on the Mount, you've heard some of this. But when Jesus came to earth as God in human form, he started what we can call a new age in history. That he came and he inaugurated what's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we call it the already but not yet reality of the kingdom. What I mean by that is this, is that the kingdom of God is God's rule and God's reign over his people. It's his rule and his reign. So when Jesus came to earth, 
Jesus came in as an inbreaking of God's kingdom, of God's rule in the world. That Jesus came and as he cast out demons, healed the sick, he was showing what God's kingdom looks like and how he was bringing it into existence. And so when Jesus lives and he died, and when he was resurrected, he provided us the way to enter into that kingdom. To be a part of God's rule and reign. To enter into a relationship with God. To be made right with him. To be saved. To enter into that kingdom. But then we know Jesus ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God, he left to one day return again to consummate and to finish and to finalize the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven in really existence. To make, to make it there's no more sin, there's no more brokenness in this world. That all things will be made right. And so right now for us, it's a lot of theology I know, but right now for us, we live in this kind of in-between. That we live in this already but not yet between Jesus coming and Jesus coming again. So we live in this weird age We know that eternity is coming, and if we're in Christ, that we know that our life is not the end of everything, that there is an eternity ahead of us. And we have this life that we live where we kind of live in this fuzzy ground, and that's why Paul says the present form of this world is passing away. He's saying that the present form of this world is is changing. Not that the world's going to be burned up and thrown away. When he says world, he means the world system. But he's saying the present form of this world is changing as God begins to bring his kingdom into reality and as Christ comes back. So what that all means for us is this, if you boil it down, is that as Christians then, we don't live for this current world. We don't live just for the next 50, 60, 70 years on earth, but we instead live in light of eternity. We live in light of Jesus coming again. We live in light of the next 50 billion years with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth. So then everything that we do, everything we, every way we live in society, our relationships, even our marriages and singleness, all that we live in light of God and eternity, and what Christ has done. And so that's why Paul can make these kind of claims. And so then we see Jesus himself make a really radical claim we need to look at. And if you want to turn there, you can. It's just one verse in Matthew. But we see Jesus make a radical claim in Matthew 22 that supports this, where he says, in light of the return of Christ, in light of all these things we just talked about with the kingdom, there's something really radically true about marriage that we forget sometimes. is that marriage is not a permanent thing. That marriage is not an eternal thing. Marriage should be for life here on earth between a man and a woman. It's a covenant relationship. But when it comes to the grand scheme of eternity, that marriage is a permanent thing. That it's temporary. So look in Matthew twenty-two thirty, 30, if you want to. Um, in this verse, what's happening is the Sadducees, who are these religious leaders of the time, they're grueling Jesus because he believed in the resurrection, because he is the resurrection in life, but they didn't. So they were trying to find ways to kind of make him you know, seem dumb in front of all these people. So they ask him this question, like, hey, Jesus, so there's a resurrection. Then say a woman, she marries seven different guys. She marries one, he dies. Marries a second guy, he dies. Marries a third guy, he dies. If you're the fourth dude, you should really be worried about the girl who's like, all her husbands have died, by the way. Number five should have really, he should be like, man, I'm out of this. Like, I don't know what happened to their four guys. So seven people, seven guys marry this, real, this lady, she dies. They're like, okay, Jesus, so in the resurrection, who's her husband? Uh, who's she going to be married to? If she had seven husbands in this life. They're, they're really trying to make a silly point about, well, the resurrection seems silly. And Jesus responds with this, which is really surprising. He says in Matthew twenty two thirty, 30, he says, For in the resurrection, they, being God's people, those who were in new heaven, new earth, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. That they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So that means then that according to Jesus and according to the Bible, that marriage is temporary. That it doesn't last into eternity. So really, instead of singleness being this like temporary state before marriage, really marriage is a temporary state before eternity. So 
If you want to write that down, you can. But instead of singleness of being a temporary state until marriage, marriage is a temporary state before eternity. And while marriage is awesome and I love my wife, you know, Haley and I, we won't be married to each other in the new heaven and a new earth. You know, our ultimate direction in eternity is not to be married to each other forever, but to be the bride of Christ forever. That marriage won't be necessary in new heaven and new earth because of us being part of the bride of Christ. And that's important for a lot of reasons. Number one is this, is because it shows us that those deep longings that we have, you know, for companionship, uh, for intimacy, you know, they ultimately can't be fulfilled in marriage. That marriage is about intimacy, it's about companionship, but our deepest longings and fulfillment is never going to be satisfied in a earthly relationship. Because if marriage isn't for eternity, then sex isn't for eternity. You know, because God has designed sex to happen within marriage. You know, while companionship may be a part of marriage, you know, our deepest longings to be known and to be loved, you know, they can't be fulfilled in marriage either because marriage is temporary. You know, so that doesn't mean that eternity is going to be like really lame. It doesn't mean eternity is going to be really sad and boring and we're going to have, you know, relationships and sex, things like that. It doesn't mean that at all. It really, the opposite is true. That means the absence of marriage in heaven shows us that no human relationship can compare to the beauty and the fullness of eternity with God. That no earthly relationship, the best of marriages, the best of friendships can never compare to an eternity with God. And that's something that we all want, whether we know know it and we can articulate that or not, that we're looking for that. We're all looking for this fulfillment in Christ. So just as marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, we talked about that a few weeks ago with Christ and the church, but just as marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. I think I put that in your notes, but just as marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, Singleness shows us the sufficiency because marriage is a picture of the Christ, of Christ in the church. That a husband lays down his wife for lays down his life for his wife, and a wife honors and loves and respects her husband. But singleness is a picture of the sufficiency of Christ. You know that what we all need more than any human relationship is a relationship with God and reconciliation through Christ, and, and that's where our deepest longings are really fulfilled. It can never be in another person. And here's the thing you need to get: we need both those pictures in the world. We need both those pictures in the church, that we need single people, that we need married people to show us both the shape of the gospel and to show us the sufficiency of the gospel. Those are both important things, and we can't downplay either one. Because like I said before, you know, sometimes we talk about singleness like it's a curse, you know, you know, and you're only single because you haven't really gotten ready for marriage yet. You know, you hear things like this, you know, okay, as soon as you, as you're satisfied in God, then God will bring the right person, you know, for you, you know, as if, you know, we earn God's blessing by being content enough, as if it works that way. You know, we, we hear stuff like, you know, before you marry someone, perf- someone wonderful, you got to become someone wonderful. You know, as if our sanctification somehow earns God's blessing of marriage in some kind of way. And that's just not the way that it works, you know, because Paul says here that singleness is a good thing. It's not a curse to be lifted or a disease to be cured, but it's a good state of life to be enjoyed. It's a good state of life to be enjoyed. And if God wants you to get married, he'll bring the right person. If he doesn't want for you to get married, then God is enough for all of us, both single and married. He's always enough. And know this, it's practically in life, that life doesn't begin once you get married. I know it's easy in college to think, you know, ring by spring, your senior year. And I actually knew a college student that got married and graduated on the same day, uh, which I guess you have your family in town. I guess it works. But, um, you know, but uh, just know this, life does not begin when you get married. Marriage is not like buying a house or buying a car or graduating. You know, It's, it's not the same thing. 
And honestly, we probably all know some immature married people who have proven that to be true, that marriage does not mean that you are mature and have reached some you know, level of adulthood. And when we view it that way, we put in unhealthy expectations and pressure on each other to get married, maybe when we're not ready or to the wrong person. Because really, I know some very incredibly uh, happy and fulfilled single people, and I also know some really miserable married people. That it can work both ways. That marriage does not uh, satisfy you. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about how marriage doesn't solve emptiness. It exposes it. It doesn't solve our problems, but it exposes our problems. And marriage isn't going to bring fulfillment and solve all the problems, especially if you feel discontent where you're at right now. Because get this, discontentment isn't a singleness issue. Discontentment is a sin issue. All right? Discontentment isn't a singleness issue. It's a sin issue. All right? And marriage isn't easy, isn't easy either. Marriage is awesome, but it also is hard. Just like singleness is great, but it's also hard. They both come with their different struggles and challenges. So don't waste the gift and the blessing of one kind of life by coveting another kind. Don't waste the, the blessing of maybe a single life by coveting someone else's life, another type of life. Because honestly, if you're dissatisfied, if you're cynical, if you're bitter when you're single, you're going to be dissatisfied, cynical, and bitter when you're married. Because marriage is never going to solve those problems. And if you let discontentment drive you from singleness into marriage, it's probably going to be a disaster because you're probably going to settle and marry someone that you shouldn't. And it's going to be a disaster many times over. Because if, if marriage becomes an idol to you, then you will willingly sacrifice your purity and sacrifice your convictions on that altar. So we have to understand that we can't view marriage as some kind of trophy that will satisfy all of our needs and get us out of this disease of singleness. It doesn't work that way. We have to be satisfied in Christ and what God has done for us and his love for us. So instead of that, we got to trust that God is good, that he's chosen for you to be single uh, for however long for his glory. Uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, um, you may have heard of him before. He had a great beard. So I, I admire him a lot for that. Um, but Charles Spurgeon, uh, he said this. I love this quote. He said, remember this. Had any other condition, I'll say it again, remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you're in, divine love would have put you there. Divine love would have put you there. That that no season and no state of life is wasted, that God has you where you are for a reason and for his glory. So seek him first. Don't seek, you know, to find contentment in the next season of life. Even if it's not singleness, even if it's just like graduating, getting the job, whatever. You got to find satisfaction and dwell in the land, as the Psalms would say, where you're at. Seek the Lord there. So we see that first, singleness is not inferior to marriage, that they both are good things. But second, we see this. We see that singleness is a gift and it's a blessing. That singleness is a gift and a blessing. As you look back at 1 Corinthians 7, the first verses we saw, we saw Paul says that, you know, each has his own gift from God. You know, one of one kind and one of another. And Paul calls singleness a gift. He calls it a gift, you know. And that word in the Greek is charisma, where we get the word charismatic. Um, and there, there are other words for the word gift in the New Testament that have more to do with like a present you receive, like on your birthday or Christmas, things like that. But Paul uses the word charisma for a very specific reason. Because charisma comes from the, uh, the root word charis, which is grace. You might know a girl named charis. You might know anybody. I know one girl named charis. So yeah, so that means grace. It's a very cool word, very cool name. All right, so you could translate 1 Corinthians 7 when it says a gift, not even just as a gift, but a grace gift. A grace gift. But here's the thing. We think about grace sometimes and we just think about like forgiveness. We think about grace being God kind of is cool with us and he kind of washes our sins and grace is just pardon. This is forgiveness. But here's the thing. The Bible doesn't paint the picture of grace just as pardon. But grace is more than just pardon. It is power. It's power to live. 
The grace is more than pardon, it's power. It's God's empowering presence in your life. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it was God's grace that empowered him to press on in obedience. He said, because grace is not just pardon, it's power. That God's grace empowers us to live. So charisma, you know, this grace gift is God's empowering presence to live in a certain way. To live in a certain way. So, um, you know, but the problem is we've misunderstood the gift of singleness many times and not viewed it as this, you know, grace gift, this empowering thing in our lives. But instead we viewed it, you know, a lot of different ways and misunderstood it. So let me give you three myths we wanted to debunk real quick about the gift of singleness and what that means. Okay, number one, one of the myths is this, is that the gift is a lifelong calling. That the gift is a lifelong calling. Because honestly, I know various single people from younger single people to people who are in their 40s and 50s who are single as well, even older sometimes, who have maybe become single again through life circumstances. And most single people don't really feel a lifelong calling to be single. Even the people who have been single for a long time, most of them don't feel this lifelong call. You know, some people are single for their whole life, and it's very possible to thrive as a single person your entire life. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that the call of singleness is some kind of lifelong thing that you receive. You know, some people want to use 1 Corinthians 7 as an example of that, but the whole point of 1 Corinthians 7 is, you know, is it's not about receiving a gift to be single your whole life. His point in that chapter is that no matter your place in life right now, that you should live for the glory of Christ no matter what. No matter where you've been placed by God and find your identity in him, not in the season that you're in. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 7. It's not that this, lifelong, this calling is lifelong. Nowhere in the Bible does it actually say that. Second myth is that the gift is a special capacity to enjoy singleness. To enjoy singleness. You know, some people say that if you enjoy being get married, you don't have the gift of singleness. But that just can't work because that bases the gift you know, on feelings, on just your emotions about having the gift. But here's the thing. You can have the gift of teaching, the gift of evangelism, the gift of prophecy, but it doesn't make those things easy and does it make those things require any less work? Like, I feel like I have the gift of teaching, but for me, teaching sometimes is one of the most hard things I ever do. It's, it can be discouraging, it, it can be hard, it's very rewarding, but it's not easy. It's not easy at all. You know, it, but, it's, but it's part of what I feel like God has called me to do, but it doesn't make me easy. And every other gift has its own set of challenges, including the gift of singleness. And here's the thing, it's, it's very possible, and hear me out on this, it's very possible to really want to get married but also to be really satisfied in Christ at the same time. And also to be really satisfied with where God has you. It's very possible to really desire and want to get married and have kids. But also to be very content where God has you and where God has placed you. And here's the thing, that the world has no like, you know, diagram for that. The world can't understand that idea of how do you want this, but yet you also are content where you're at because of what God has for you. But that is so possible. And I think that's a beautiful display of really trusting God and being content in him, knowing that he is sufficient and it's only possible in Christ. But it is possible to really want to be married but also be completely content and satisfied in Christ. All right, third myth is that the gift is a lack of desire for marriage and sex. Kind of related, but yet again, you know, this makes the gift about our feelings and not about God's power in our life. Because here's the thing, you know, seeking to obey God, seeking to kill sin, seeking to fight sexual temptation... Those are part of every Christian's life, no matter what. Whether you're single or whether you're married, all of us in Christ have to seek to obey God, to deny sin, to fight sexual temptation. Not just people with some kind of special gift in some way. You know, self-control is a spiritual maturity thing. It's not a spiritual gift thing. 
You know, you may have saw that verse we said, we looked at um, in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, 9, where Paul says, you know, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. It's a really strange phrase, right? It's a Greek euphemism. Um, but it's better to marry than to burn with passion. You may have heard people say before that, you know, okay, that means that if you can't control yourself sexually, then just get married. That's God's solution to it. And that's just not true. That's terrible marriage advice, first off. That's just awful advice. And the Bible doesn't give bad advice, okay? So, like, you know, so that can't be true. That's just not the case at all. Here's the thing. The, the context of the Corinthians and what they were going with was this. The problem was that husbands were neglecting, neglecting to get married. But not husbands, sorry. Men were neglecting to get married because they were going and sleeping with temple prostitutes and having sex that way instead of going and marrying a woman and expressing sexuality that way. They weren't expressing sex within the, the godly design of it. They were going to temple prostitutes. And so Paul says, you know, the only right way to live this out is to be self-controlled and to consider marriage as the only viable option for their sexuality. He's not saying that if you just you really want to have sex, get married. That's, that's not the point at all. That's terrible advice. So if, you're, if the person you're dating, your boyfriend, girlfriend, if they're pressuring you into, get, into getting married just to have sex, run away. Like, get out of that junk. That is, that is awful. Because if they don't have self-control in dating, they sure won't have self-control when they marry. All right? If you don't have self-control when you're single, it's not going to magically turn. Some, some switch doesn't magically flip when you become married that you suddenly just have self-control. If they're not self-controlled before, they're not going to be self-controlled when you get married. And sex, while being a good motivation for marriage, it can't be the only motive. If it's the only motive, then you need to you get out of that because it's a bad relationship. All right? But the truth is this. Every Christian has to fight temptation, whether they're single or they're married. That single people have to fight sin by saying no to sexual activity, and married people fight sin by staying faithful to their spouse. But either way, we have to say no to sinful desires. We have to say no to our flesh. So all that said with the myths, how does Paul say that singleness is a blessing and a gift? And we'll begin to wrap up with this. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. Look down at verses 32 through 35. Paul says this, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You may have heard these not a blessing, wondered what to do with these. Well, here's the thing. Basically, Paul says this, that singleness is not a blessing because it's freedom from responsibility. It's not a blessing because it's freedom to kind of just do whatever you want. But singleness is a blessing because it's a freedom for responsibility. It's not a blessing to be free, free from responsibility. It's a blessing to be free for responsibility. He promotes singleness because he says it gives you a great advantage. It's advantageous to serve the Lord and to serve other people. And that's a radical thought because the world says singleness is good because it lets you just focus on yourself, do whatever you want to do. But the Bible says singleness is good so you can focus on other people, on to serve. Because the reality of marriage is this, you're just less flexible. I know there's different, you know, context for that, but the reality of marriage is that I'm less flexible now as a married guy with a kid on the way than I was when I was single. It's a beautiful thing. I love it, but I, I can't go and spend three months in the, you know, the Middle East on some mission trip this coming summer because I'm married. I have a kid. Well, I will have a kid at that point, right? I'm less flexible in that way. I've taken on responsibilities, but a single person has the flexibility to serve in that way. And Paul says that that's a good thing that we should celebrate. 
And there's benefits to both singleness and marriage. But singleness, we can't forget, has its own benefits and blessings that are good things. But, you know, just like anything else in life, singleness is what you make it. It is what you make it. So remember this. If you're single right now, which most of you are, less than I said, but most of you are, you know, I want to encourage you to make the most of it. To make the most of your time as a single person. Um, you take the opportunity to invest in your education, to relationships, and ministry. You know, go spend a summer working at a camp. Go spend a summer doing ginseng. You know, take some risks. Have some adventures. Do things that you maybe won't be able to do if you get married in the future. Because not that, you know, marriage is some kind of boring thing. Like, marriage is a whole adventure in and of itself. It's amazing. But it's different than the adventure of and the gift of singleness. Because even the older you get, the less freedom that you have in many ways as you take on responsibility. So enjoy it, you know, and take advantage of it. But one last thing, and we'll wrap up with this, um, is I feel like I need to say this just because of my life experience, but here's the thing. Many of you are going to graduate, and you're not going to be married yet, and you're going to enter into the world of being a young adult who is single, who's not a college student anymore, you know, and depending on what city you move to and what you do, you may find yourself in a, in a position where you kind of feel like, you know, an outsider a little bit, that maybe you feel like most of your friends are married, you know, maybe you're in a church or in a setting in your city where most people kind of have have paired up and have kids, maybe things like that. You may find yourself in that season. And I want to let you know a a few things about that, especially when it comes to the church. Number one is this, you know that the church honestly can be a difficult place for single young adults. It really, it really can be, you know, uh, so much of the church is built around marriage and family. Um, I think it's unintentional, and we have good intentions in that. But sometimes in the church, our implicit, you know, message, whether we mean it or not, is that the most important thing for you to do once you graduate college is to marry somebody and move on, like, you know, join the club like the rest of us. You know, that you haven't really reached adulthood until you get married. You know, and until you do that, you can go hang out in the singles, young adult class, you know, the, the single Sunday school class or something, and maybe find someone to marry. You know, until then, and honestly, the church, I think, has done a massive disservice to single people. In many ways, you know, and I'm not like, you know, complaining or whatever, but I've just observed it in many different ways that honestly, we've really done a disservice to single people. And the amount of single people in the church surveys say is actually decreasing, but the amount of single people in, the, in our country is actually increasing every year. So there's this disparity where the church is not being a place many times where single people feel like they can connect. They maybe feel like an outsider. And so I want you to know that, not to be negative, but to tell you this, the second thing, is that if you find yourself in that situation in a few years, know that the church absolutely needs you. The church absolutely needs you. Because this is married people show the shape of the gospel, single people show the sufficiency of the gospel. We need single and married people in the church to complement each other, and we need the church to be a place where single people, especially single young adults, feel like they belong that they have an absolute place and they matter. Because you matter in the kingdom of God, you absolutely matter in the church. And so if you find yourself in that situation, work to create some communities even, where people, young single people feel welcome as well. But also don't feel like you had to isolate yourselves into some kind of class, but join in knowing that you can learn from a married couple just as much as they can learn from you, that you can work together and grow together, that we need each other in the church. And be an advocate for that. Be an advocate for that because we need each other in that way, all right? So that may be down the road for a couple of y'all, but maybe you'll remember that in three years. Maybe you won't, okay? Look up this podcast in three years and remember it, all right? So, um, but as we close, I want to say this, you know, one last thing and we'll be done. And we'll discuss for a few minutes. Just know this, that just because you may be single, you know, now or in the future, just because someone is single, even for a lifetime, does not mean that they can't have deep and intimate friendships and relationships in the church. It doesn't mean that at all. Jesus says in the book of Mark, we're going through it, we'll eventually get there on Sunday mornings in Mark 3. 
Mark 3.35, Jesus says this. He says, For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The implication is this, is that followers of Jesus are family. That they're more family even than blood relative family. We're the blood-bought family together. That followers of Jesus are family. And yes, we have a lot of work to do in the church when it comes to really living this out. But that's Jesus' vision for the church. That we're family. That we open up our homes to each other. That we live life together. That married couples and families make space in their home for single people who maybe don't have you know, kids and have a, a marriage to go home to, a spouse to go home to. They bring single people into their lives to feel valued and, and that they matter not to feel lonely or neglected, but they matter in the church. That's the vision that Jesus has of the family of God. And it's huge when it comes to living this out. And remember John thirteen thirty five, very famous verse, but I think this applies to us when it comes to this stuff. That Jesus says this in thirteen thirty five. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. There's a great book um, by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's this radical idea of hospitality in the church. That really, that really when we're in Christ and we're in the church, we're family. That we're the kind of people that say, hey, here's a key to my house. You, you belong to our family. You're, you're part of our family. You know, maybe not to give your key to anybody, you know, but like people that you want to be, you know, close with. That we have that kind of deep, intimate relationships in the church, which is radical. It's crazy to people who don't get the gospel, right? But that's the kind of family that we're called to be in the church. And that's Christ's vision for the church. That as we love each other in that way, that people see that we are disciples of Jesus. It's a radical idea, but it's powerful. All right, so that's singleness for tonight. Next week, we'll look at God's design for men and women. But I want to give you guys about five or 10 minutes to discuss tonight a few questions. You have three questions on your sheet there at the bottom of your outline. Um, Discuss those for a few minutes, and then I'll come back and dismiss us, and we'll have some cookies and brownies. You can talk to some of our recruiters, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your word that speaks into all parts of life, that it gives us wisdom and insight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see, even though this that may have seen some kind of, you know, odd message to uphold the goodness of singleness in a culture and maybe even a church that says marriage is the ultimate thing. I pray that you'd help us to see, Lord, that you, Lord, you've given us all different callings and seasons in life, Lord, whether that means for a, a lifelong, uh, a life of singleness or to get married, whatever you have for us in the future, that you are good, that you love us, or that your divine love is working our lives and that you are writing our stories and that more than anything, you don't want us to look and covet the next season we think we may be in in life, but to dwell in your goodness, to be satisfied in who you are, in your love for us, to remind ourselves of the gospel, the fact that we've been brought from death to life in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, that we receive that new life in his name. I pray that you would help us to remind ourselves of our identity as adopted children of God, more than our identity as a single person or as a dating person or as an engaged person, a married person. Our identity more than anything else would be in being an adopted child of God. And that would transform everything about the way we go through even normal daily life and especially the big picture seasons of life. Well, we love you. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.